2 Samuel chapter 12. First, a quick review. This is part two of our look at the great sin of David. And with that, we conclude our study of the life of David. Last Sunday, we read 2 Samuel chapter 11, which tells the account of David's adultery with Bathsheba and his indirect murder of her husband Uriah. We looked at the circumstances of David's sin. That was his prosperity and his power, as well as his sloth and his pride. We looked then at the commission of the sin, how lust and opportunity brought forth sin and brought forth death. Uh, And uh, then we considered how that sin led to more sin as David was motivated to great evil, interestingly, in order to appear righteous. His initial trespass was not properly dealt with, so it led to more and greater sin, and that sin, or that's where we left off, I should say, last week. We left David in his hard-hearted condition of trying to cover over what he had done. He was on a downward spiral, sinking down and away from the God who had loved him. And chapter 12 is where we are today, and it says in verse 1, then the Lord. Then the Lord. You run into these phrases throughout Scripture. The most frequent one is, but God. This is similar. Then the Lord. When everything seems darkest and you wonder if there is any hope, these are the words that pop up over and over again, then the Lord. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. The Lord sent Nathan to David. This is a simple but a beautiful word. Think of what is happening in this passage. Here's a man whom God has made, whom God has redeemed, who God has appointed as ruler over his people. He, this this one, this very God-blessed man, turns his back on his Lord. He sins grievously against his God, and David does not immediately repent. He's not broken, not at this point. He is hardened against God. The sweet communion of man and maker, of which we read so often in the Psalms that David writes, has been severed by David's trespass. Now now understand, God does not need David. David needs God. God has not wronged David. David has wronged God. But who is it? who takes the first step towards reconciliation. Maybe some of you are involved in interpersonal conflicts that can apply this to yourselves right now. Who begins the restoration of the relationship here? It is the offended God, the insulted sovereign, the forsaken Lord, who is still the forgiving Redeemer. Not only is He willing to receive us, When we come to Him, as the Father received back His prodigal, that's grace plenty. But what is even more amazing is that our God comes to us and He seeks out His rebel children, even as that good shepherd goes after the lost sheep. And so the Lord sent Nathan to David. You see what a gracious act of God that is? The Lord could have just let David go and sink into the pit of his own sin. That's exactly what David 
deserved. Really better than he deserved. This is off script. I always get nervous when I'm off script. So does Beth. So God bless. <laughs> uh, but it hit me as I read this, my sister's story. This was my sister who told me in college that she didn't ever want to talk to me again because I was wasting my talents to go to seminary and become a pastor. And she re grew up in the church as I did. She rejected it all. She became a drug addict. She was a pharmacist, okay? Had access to everything. Became a drug addict was out of communication with my mother for 17 years. Nobody in the family talked to her for 12. She lived in a rescue mission. <laughs> this was national merit finalist. Only B in high school was in PE. <laughs> Ocala's junior miss. But despite all of her rebellion, all of her rejection of what she had raised with, in a rescue mission, God sent a pastor to her. And after not talking to her for 14, 15 years, when she emerged out of that, she wasn't, she wasn't altogether what you would hope. But somewhere in there, her hostility to God was gone. And she spent her days watching TV preachers. One of the people God raised up to care for my sister is a sister, daughter-in-law of one of our church members from Florida who's been taking care of her for two months. And when she was first in the hospital, Evelyn tells me that she witnessed a gender in the hospital. Asked her if she knew God, and my sister said, oh, I'm trusting my Lord and Savior Jesus. She, she rejected the Lord as blatantly and flagrantly as anybody could. But God sent a preacher to her and a rescue mission. He did the same with David. God, being rich in mercy and patient with his children, came to him. David's conscience, the word of God, should have been sufficient to convict David. God could easily have said, he, he doesn't need Nathan. He has Moses. But he didn't say that. He sent the faithful prophet with a rebuke from God. This was God's grace. When you are in sin, it is not grace that leaves you to squirm in your sin. That confronting brother or sister or parent or wife or neighbor is a gift of God to pull you up and give fresh air to your soul by His grace. The Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came and said to him, and now, the drama of what we are about to read is just incredible. I, 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 uh, I wish I could make us appreciate it fully. What a story Nathan tells. We've seen the circumstances of David's sin, the commission of his sin, the continuation of his sin. Now we come to the confrontation over his sin. These are all C's. You got that, David? All C's. <laughs> uh, confrontation over his sin. There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb 
which he bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. Can't you just picture this humble peasant with this precious little family pet? This man, he couldn't give fancy things to his children. All they had was their special little lamb. Verse 4, now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And then David's anger burned greatly against the man. Well, doesn't yours? Oh, my goodness. Don't you find yourself getting steamed over this kind of thoughtless cruelty? I mean, we rise up in righteous indignation. We want to see this rich man punished. Amen? Oh, yeah. So did David. So David says in verse 5, as the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. And David was right about that. This man did deserve to die, but he didn't say the man would die. Instead, verse 6, he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. This, you see, is what the biblical law called for on such occasions. Then in verse 7, we come to what may be the greatest line in the history of sermons in the midst of David's righteous anger, Nathan said to David, You are the man. Go back to my King James background at this point. Thou art the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, it is I who anointed you king over Israel, it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house, your master's wives into your care. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah, and if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why? <coughs> Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed the sword of the sons of Ammon, or killed with the sword and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. <laughs> there you go. Thou art the man. Like a flaming arrow, this word went straight to the heart of the king. When Nathan said, you are the man, the sting of conviction for David. It must have been overwhelming. The point of Nathan's parable was not lost on David. He could see the parallels, and suddenly the full weight of his guilt crashed upon him. Nathan displayed before David the horror of his sin, the vileness of what he had done, and he redirected David's moral outrage toward himself. Conviction of sin, you see, means that your moral outrage, which we more typically direct toward all those rotten sinners out there, gets rechanneled towards your own moral failure. You learn, as David did, that you are the man, and that's very different than you the man. This is you are the guilty man. And then Nathan just pours it on in verse 7. I, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. 
he goes on to show off just how ugly is the sin of David because not only did he violate the life and dignity of two innocent people, he did it all from a position of enormous blessing. David, remember, is the rich man of the parable. God had showed on, showered on him inconceivable blessing, and the Lord is exposing here his heart of wretched ingratitude. But it's no different with you and me. If we are Christian, then we have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We are the benefactors of God's mercy. And when we sin, we sin against love. Verse 8, I gave you your master's house, your master's wives. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. If that had been too little, I would have given many more things like these as well. To despise something. Then he goes on. He says, why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? To despise something is to uh, think it is a matter of no consequence. And I'm sure that David's response, as he heard this, might be like yours. Wait a second. I don't, I don't despise the Lord's Word. But whenever we choose the way of sin, <laughs> that is what we are doing. Nathan is here exposing two hidden roots of David's adultery. One was a profound and grievous ingratitude, and the second was a low view of God's Word. We despise God's Word when we decide, hey, my feelings, my lust are more weighty than His laws. Why have you despised the Word of the Lord? Why, 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 and David must have asked himself that question the rest of his life. So put yourself in David's shoes. Imagine how he must have felt. His secret sins were uncovered and displayed before him in all of his ugliness. Furthermore, the words of Nathan have drawn David into an encounter with God. He remembers the Lord, majestic, before whom sin is so vile, before whom David is so guilty. This is the confrontation over David's sin. That's our fourth point of six. Our next point then will be the consequences, another C, the consequences of David's sin, James 1, verse 14 and 15. Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. We saw this last week. What kind of death did it bring forth in David's life? Well, verse 10 of our main text says, The sword shall never depart from your house, because you've despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Here we begin to see God's punishments for David's sin. Consequence number one, the sword came into David's house and his family And you know what? That's often where our sin will wreak the most havoc. You can sin like the devil and maybe still do a good business, but your family life is going to suffer. God pretty much promises that. Because of what you have done, He promises it to David at least, because of what you have done, a sword will enter and tear up your family. And, And this didn't take very long, for in chapter 13, next chapter, David's son Ammon rapes his half-sister Tamar, and in retaliation, David's son Absalom kills David's son Ammon. 
and you thought your kids didn't get along. David has murder within his family, and then soon after, his same, the same son, Absalom, wages civil war against David. Even after David's death, Solomon, his son, kills his brother Adonijah. Wow. Nathan said, uh, verse 10, The sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah that would be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. This is what Absalom did. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. And so we find in 2 Samuel chapter 16, verse 20, Absalom says to Ahithophel, Give your advice. Again, this is Absalom, the son that's rebelling against David, pulling a coup off against his father, and Ahithophel is his advisor. What shall we do? Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house. Then all Israel will hear that you have made yourself odious to your father. The hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. This is something that I see happening historically. What am I talking about? I see it happening even in my short lifetime. The secret sins of one generation become the open sins of the next generation. If you're my age, haven't we seen that? Right? One generation hides to commit iniquity and immorality. The next generation will flaunt its decadence. And that's what Absalom does. David tried to be very private about it all. Absalom celebrates his immorality for all to see. Let's go on, verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. Well, this is incredible, isn't it? In the midst of hearing God's judgment, David groans in verse 13. Or, and then you know, the promise, God has taken away your sin. We find forgiveness of sins. How beautiful is this? How sweet this must have been to David's ears. Uh, Notice a couple of things. One, the forgiveness comes without penance. Without penance. That is, Nathan did not tell David that to gain forgiveness, you must make a large donation to the seminary, or you must say a thousand Hail Sarahs, or you must do 400 hours of community service. None of that could work off the sin. None of that could balance off the account before the court of heaven. David understood that, expressed this in Psalm 51, which we're going to be in for the next several minutes. Psalm 51 Verse 16, you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That is, forgiveness follows not penance, not sacrifice, but simply repentance and contrition. Another thing to see about God's forgiveness, it came only after the harshest rebuke. Now, a lot of people think that true forgiveness won't ever even mention 
the sin. They cannot see how rebuke and forgiveness go together, but they do go together. In fact, healing often cannot take place until the wound is opened up and made to hurt for a while. But let me tell you, when you've seen your sin as David saw it, hurt over it like David hurt over it, forgiveness at that point is oh so extraordinarily precious. So precious. The Spirit of God not only called, is called in Scripture the Comforter, but He also is the one who is sent, says Jesus, to convict men of sin. The sting of conviction and the comfort of forgiveness, they go together. Together. Third thing to note about this forgiveness is that it does not preclude discipline and chastisement. Okay. A lot of kids over here in this section, so I'm going to wander over here. It's where most of the young people are. When your parents, when your young child disobeys you, parents, you have two things you must do, right? You forgive them and you punish them. (laughs) You forgive and you punish. And those two things are not at all contradictory. No. So we see David's heavenly father saying to him what? I forgive you, yes. I will not deal with you in wrath, but, some kids over here too, there are consequences for your sin, right? Some of you experience every day of your life the consequences of past sins, don't you? Sexual sins, relational sins, sins of laziness or drunkenness or drug abuse. Has God forgiven those sins? Praise His name. Yes, He has. But the scars and the hurts and the setbacks, maybe even the physical consequences still remain. Forgiveness does not preclude chastisement. God says there will be heavy penalties or consequences, my child. We've seen two of these already. In verse 14, we have a third. There it says, because by this deed you've given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. And so the death of this child, who by now may already be born, is the consequence. But there's another consequence of David's sin, which is a cause of that consequence. He says, the enemies of the Lord have been given occasion to blaspheme. What does that mean? Well, it means there will be those who learn of this scandal in Israel, and they'll say, ha, look at what that Yahweh worshiper did. What kind of sorry religion is that? As we would put it, David's witness for the Lord was spoiled, and his God dishonored by his deed. And when you take upon yourself the name of Christ, understand this. His reputation is now at stake in your life. Paul said in Romans 2 that the Gentiles blasphemed God because of the sorry example of the Jewish leadership. And often it is this unbeliever's blaspheming the Lord because of the conduct of Christians that they observe. You've seen it. You've heard it with reference to Christians in your workplace maybe and Christians in the national media. provide a long list of pastors over the last half century and spiritual leaders whose open scandalous behavior has brought, well, it's given opportunity for the world to scoff. So 
it can be said of you and me that when we sin like David, we are giving ammunition to our enemies. For one, like David, uh, who, who had a zeal for God's honor, what a pain to know. What a pain to know that you've helped the enemy. I think of this and I tremble because I know, I know it would be like a knife in my stomach to hear of someone scorning the gospel of Jesus Christ because of the sin of me, his servant. Now they may scorn the gospel because I adhere to certain biblical values that they despise. That's a different thing. But when they scorn the gospel because I have lived in a manner clearly, blatantly contradictory to the values of my Lord, that's the scandal. But David has done just that. And I haven't been perfect in this area myself. I've done this to some extent as well, and I expect you have too. So we see these great consequences of David's sin, and they are tragically sad, especially when you think they all resulted from David's choice of a few moments of sensual pleasure. As best we can tell, the affair with Bathsheba was a one-night stand. Maybe it consisted of a single hour of passionate adventure, an hour which haunted David <coughs> for decades to come. Hebrews 11 speaks about the passing pleasures of sin. That's a good phrase. You don't need to have the whole verse, but get that in your head. The passing pleasures of sin. What's the adjective there? Passing. <laughs> Momentary pleasures of sin. Real pleasures, yes, I won't deny that. But passing pleasures that bring lasting grief. Middle part of this last century, 20th century. It's a preacher uh, out of Memphis named R.G. Lee, Baptist preacher. R.G. Lee. Uh, and I'm told he preached one sermon 3,000 times. <laughs> and I uh, heard that sermon on one of these things we call an audio cassette. Ask your parents about it. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it was a sermon called Payday Someday. And toward the end of his sermon, he kept pounding this refrain, Oh, what a price I pay just for one riotous day, years of regret and grief. Got that? We parents and grandparents especially want some of you that are 12, 18, <laughs> to grasp the principle here, oh, what a price I paid just for one riotous day, years of regret and grief. This is the message of Peter, or about Proverbs, about sexual sin in particular. In Proverbs 7, we read of a young man seduced by a loose, <coughs> adulterous woman. Verse 21, with her many persuasions, she entices him with her flattering lips. She seduces him, and here's what you got to get. Suddenly, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool until an arrow pierces through his liver as a bird hastens to the snare so he does not know that it will cost him his life. 
Oh, what a price I pay just for one riotous day. Years of regret and grief. Young people, listen to me. Listen, there are some things in life about which you get no second chance. You blow it once and you pay for the duration of your days. You cannot afford to learn the lessons about sexual purity by trial and error. That's why the proverb goes on, verse 24, Now therefore, my sons, listen to me and pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your hearts turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many are the victims she has cast down. We know that, right? Numerous are all her slain. Her house is the way to Sheol, descending to the chambers of death. And that death will manifest in a variety of different ways in people's lives. I once heard this story from a Christian speaker. He said he spoke at a conference, and after a talk that he gave, a man about my age approached him and, uh, <coughs> and told him his story. The fellow said that when he was in college, he was known as a zealous, on-fire Christian, sold out for Christ. In fact, he wanted to be a missionary doctor in some place like Sierra Leone. But then, while working in the hospital, he met a gorgeous nurse and fell in love. But this nurse did not share his love for Christ. She was not a believer, but he married her. And uh, she gradually snuffed out his spiritual fire. And then at the age of 65, he said to this preacher, I forsook the Lord, and for 40 years I have wasted my life. He said, I know God will forgive me, and I'll serve Him with what I have left, but oh, how it hurts to see the vanity of 40 lost years. Oh, what a price I pay just for one riotous day, years of regret and grief. These are the consequences of sin, of David's, of ours. Spiritual alertness can spare us the pain. <laughs> he who has ears to hear, let him hear. All right, still we're not done. We got time. The confrontation, the consequences. Now we need one more C. What do we need? Confession. There we go. The confession of David's sin. Verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. The king is surely blown away at this point. Wonderfully, his first response to Nathan, it's not evasive. It's not excusing. His full confession we get in Psalm 51, which gives us David's response to Nathan's rebuke. But first I want you to look at Psalm 32. One might well wonder what David was like between the time of his sin and the time of Nathan's reproof. How long it was, we do not know. It seems to have been at least many months, maybe a whole year, but you can read the expression of David's experience. Psalm 32, verse 1. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. And those who know the depth of their sin have a heightened appreciation for the wonder of God's pardon. I mean, read that. How blessed am I? I am forgiven. Hallelujah. Verse 3. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. 
For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. And here he describes the mysterious darkness of the backslidden child of God. Surely there is nothing more miserable than a backslidden Christian. God will not let one of his own children enjoy their sin. You read of the misery David was in, and why was he like this? Not simply because he sinned. He was miserable and bound in soul because he kept silent about his sin. Psalm 32, 5. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. Read the rest of it with me. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. How good is that? Now, his full confession is found in Psalm 51. We're going to look at it just briefly today, very briefly. Verse 2, Psalm 51. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Yes, he sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. But David sees his primary offense to be against God. And so it is with all of our sins. Sin is not just, <coughs> sin is not just broken rules. It is a broken relationship with one who deserves our absolute complete devotion. Verse 4, again, against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. David says, whatever you do to me, I deserve it. Whatever you do to me, I deserve it. This is an indicator of genuine repentance, of genuine brokenness and humility. So many, you know, they'll rebel against God, they'll trample on His covenant, and then when they're disciplined, they'll whine about how unfairly they're being treated and how the consequence is so out of proportion with the sin. True repentance does not despise the discipline of God. It does not revolt. It does not get angry over the consequences of, sin, of, their, of their sin. David meekly accepts these consequences as his due. Indeed, as less than his due. And we can see in the rest of David's life that he never blames God for his troubles. And by the way, his troubles were extraordinarily huge. He understands who is at fault. He doesn't point fingers. He doesn't gloss over what he's done. He admits whatever happens to me, I had it coming. Can you say that? I speak with people sometimes who are suffering from self-inflicted wounds, who have thumbed their noses at God and reaped a harvest of misery, but instead of seeing their own fault, they whine and they fuss and they wonder why mean old God would do this to me. How refreshing it is that David says, whatever you do to me is right. And then he goes on and says, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Here he confesses not only his sin, but his sinfulness. Got that? Not only his sin, but his sinfulness. He doesn't argue that it was a mistake. You hear that a lot in public conversations. Yeah, it was a mistake. He doesn't claim that he is, after all, basically a good guy who just slipped up one evening. No, no. He admits what he is, a fallen, corrupted son of Adam. Well, let's skip down Psalm 51, verse 12. 
Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Surely that's gone. The joy is gone. Not the salvation, but the joy is gone. The assurance of his salvation, the felt nearness of God, we're all driven away by his sin. He goes on to speak of a godly sorrow of sin. He's contrite. He's broken. He will not speak flippantly like some do and say, well, sure, I'm a sinner, but, you know, I know God forgives. David is broken of heart by his violation of his Lord, and this is true repentance. This is not, this is not the sorrow which again, some exhibit. For there are many, many who become sorrowful over the results of their sin, right? We regret it when we run out of money. We regret our sin when the wife finally has enough and packs the kids up and moves out. We regret our sin when we lose our jobs or fail the course or get arrested. Everybody's sorry about that. But the difference between that kind of worldly sorrow and Holy Ghost-wrought grieving over sin because I've offended my Lord, that's the difference between heaven and hell. Last verse for today, 2 Corinthians 7.10. The sorrow according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. The sorrow of the world, the regret over the consequences, well, that's light years away from the heart yearning for purity that we experience and read in David's prayer. The sorrow of the world produces nothing but what? Death. But a godly sorrow, a sincere confession, God will accept, and he mixes it with grace and turns it into everlasting life. Psalm 51, great, great passage. Many, many times I have prayed this beautiful prayer I've made it my own. I've given myself far too many occasions to uh, utilize it. It is told of true godly sorrow. It has expressed my hope in God's mercy, my longing to live more perfectly for Him. So, question, how do you handle your sin? How do you handle your sin? Covered up? Add alcohol, caramel popcorn, or Psalm 51, whose author is called in Scripture a man after God's own heart, not because he didn't sin, but because he confessed it. He hated it, and he turned from it. May the Spirit of God give us grace 